Welcome back, everybody, to the Rooted in Logos podcast, episode number 61. My name is Brad. I am joined, as always, by my dear friend, Austin Loop. How are you doing, Austin? I'm doing excellent, besides the nasally and the... The Ohio uh, Valley crud. Dude, it hit me hard the past <laughs> couple days, yeah. But other than that, I'm good. Good. I'm good. Most of the time, my allergies are in the fall, and so you'll hear me in the fall get all snotty and gross. We have and- evidence. You know, we have, we have several episodes. We have several episodes of that. So, <laughs> yeah. luckily in the spring, it's not as bad. But this is that time of year, especially here in uh, here in Louisville and, and well in the Ohio Valley. Ohio Valley, nice and allergy prone. But and I've we you know we've been talking for about 30, 40 minutes since you got here and just kind of hanging out and catching up. But uh, I didn't mention this to you until now because I wanted to see if you know <laughs> what happens this Wednesday when this episode comes out. Do you know what it is? What is significant about? This Wednesday. This Wednesday. Like in like our country or in just the world or just in, us? In just or... us and we'll be so, it'll be our first year anniversary. Exactly right? one year. Woo! So when hey. when this episode comes out on May fourth, on Wednesday, May fourth, it'll be one year to the day that we released episode one Dude, that's cool. of this podcast. Huh. So we are at a year, which is uh pretty cool. That's I'm pretty not cool. sure I expected it to last a year when we started. I don't know if on it, not saying that I thought we would quit, but I just didn't know if we would need to keep need going to keep, or yeah. want to keep going. Yeah, yeah. but yeah, we, that's true. here we are a year later, and I'm like, all right, let's keep going. Let's get another year under our belts, dude. I'm pumped. Start year two strong. So, but we are on episode 61. You know, there are a lot of things in the news and a lot of things we could discuss. You know, you have our uh, current administration putting together a disinformation panel through the oh Department of goodness. Homeland Security. Doesn't sound like the book 1984 at all. Right. Um, I, 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 if you don't see that, guys, wake up. But I really don't want to talk about that because that's just depressing and terrible. So we're just going <laughs> to, you know, we're not going to talk about anything no. to, to open this up. We're not going to really no. have any kind of discussion on that. So, okay. yeah, it is okay. But what we are going to do, we're going to take the next four, five, six weeks, depending on how long this lasts, and we're going to talk about apologetics. And mm. if you are a member at our church, you have the opportunity to come hear us kind of do this in person on Sunday mornings for the next few weeks at our second service. Or if you don't go to our church, you can still come and hear us. It's also true. Our church uh, at like 10, 1030 we start. Yeah, 1030. Uh, 1030 a.m. Yeah. Sunday. <laughs> First service at 9, second service at 1030. We, we are doing our class during the 1030 service at Lanesville. So we are uh, excited to, to be a part of that. And, and if you did attend the class, first of all, thank you. We've gotten some cool feedback from a mm-hmm. few people. If you did attend, don't turn this episode off. We are going to dive a little deeper than we did Sunday morning, and we're going to put back in the parts we took out because yeah. we had too much stuff. So there's going to be some new content in here from from yesterday's you know lesson. And, and well, that we won't be as nervous. So. Won't be as nervous. <clears throat> might be a little clearer. And I can yeah. I can have the power to edit. And make us sound more confident, even if we're not. So Exactly. <laughs> and so the next few weeks, we're going to dive into that. So this week, uh, well, it, let's just give a quick overview of what we're doing. The first week, we talked about just the definition of apologetics. Yep. We talked about Austin dove into and is going to dive into different types of apologetics and when they're useful and, and when you would use different approaches. I'm going to define it. I'm going to talk about hermeneutics and I'm going to spend a little bit more time on my end, at least on the idea of exegesis versus eisegesis and why those are so important to apologetics. Cause you're like, okay, you guys are talking about apologetics. 
Why are you getting into hermeneutics? Well, they go hand in hand. If you don't have a proper view of Scripture and don't know how to properly interpret Scripture, your apologetic arguments mean nothing (laughs) because you're going to get it wrong and you're going to lead people down a wrong path. Exactly. So we want to establish the basics. And that's what these next few weeks are going to be, is just establishing some basics. So next week, we're going to talk about how we study the Bible and, and, and the approaches we need to be taking when reading the Scripture and, and, and preparing lessons or preparing to talk about it with somebody or just in our daily lives. Yeah. How, do we, how do we read it and, and how do we approach it? Then we're going to kind of dive into, we're going to dive into why we're able to trust the Bible. Yeah. And we're going to get into some of the history of that. It's going to be a little more informative, a little less practical, honestly, and more just educational, educational. and, and yeah. more of, hey, this is why we believe the Bible is true and why we believe we can rely on what it says. Yeah. So, you know, we talk about, you know, the Bible isn't a book of science, but when it speaks to science, it's true. Right. The Bible's not a book of history, necessarily, but when it speaks of historical events, it's accurate and it's true. Right. And so, why do we believe that? What are some concrete proofs we have? What are some evidences we have of that? We're going to dive into that that week. And then the fourth week, or fifth, or six, however long this ends up going, <laughs> we're going to talk about some common contradictions found in the Bible. Or supposed contradictions. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you read the four Gospels and you read all four accounts of the crucifixion. There are some different variances and different things that are a little bit, you know, that one author focuses on over, excuse me, over the other. And we're going to talk about that and why that happens and why we think and, and we believe that those aren't really an issue. Right. And how we can kind of resolve that. It's it's rare that you as a, as a common believer, me as a common believer, are going to get into these just huge philosophical, yeah. you know, Sagan-esque debates about the existence of God right. and about Christianity. It's not going to happen. We're going to have more common conversations like, hey, why does it say Judas threw 30 pieces of silver back or gave the 30 pieces of silver back to the Pharisees? But then in the other in one of the other books, it says he bought a plot of land and hung himself. Right. And they're going to talk about contradictions, saying that undermines the validity of Scripture. Right. We want to answer that. And so we want to really just skim the surface of apologetics. We're yeah. not going to go super, super deep into this. It would, yeah. Because it would, would take a long we time. We would do semesters. Also, it. I, I'm stu- it's taken me two years to study it, and I still <laughs> don't feel like I have a great grasp on it, right? So yeah. it's a big subject. So it's kind of our game plan for the next few weeks. So like I said, if you are coming to our classes... Uh, at church, keep listening to this because we're going to have new stuff in here that we don't get to, and and yeah. maybe even new thoughts that we thought of afterwards or questions that came up and, yeah. and we talk about. Uh, if you aren't, this is a great way to to catch up. I know yeah. some people that listen to this, you know, are that do go to our church have other obligations during second service or yeah. or whatever, but they still want to know what's going on, and so this is a great way to catch up on what we've been doing. So mm-hmm. I want to start with a passage that not only drives this week's lesson and this week's study for me, but also drives this podcast. And is one that, that when I was coming up with this idea to do this and, and was thinking through what this would look like, a passage that stuck out to me and it's become part of my mission, our mission statement, part of our kind of what well, we believe mission statement. And, yeah. 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 Uh, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and it's first Peter chapter three, verse 15. And it says, 
But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. And this is where we get the word apologetics. Paul uses the term apologia, which very simply means an answer given in reply. So this is not so much a debate format, right? Where you formulate your arguments formally and you argue against, you have a prompt and you make your argument and the other person makes their argument and you score points or whatever, and you try to win the debate. That's not what this is. Yeah, This is legitimately just saying, hey, this is why I believe what I believe. And there are so many ways we can do that, and we're going to get into that today. But it is not a fight. It's not an yeah. argument in, in, the, in the hostile sense of the term. It is an argument. It's a defense. But it is a, this is why I believe it. This is why I have this hope. That is what apologetics means, to give an answer or reply. And I think, Austin, you know, you had a couple different definitions that maybe even expound on that a little bit. Yeah. Uh, The first one I have is from a man by the name of Cornelius Van Til. The way he puts it is, uh, apologetics is the vindication of the Christian philosophy of life against the non-Christian philosophy of life. And another one by Vody Bauckham is... It, basically, it's just knowing what we believe, why we believe it, and being able to communicate that effectively. And, and that's apologetics in a nutshell. And it's, it is interesting looking at what Peter says, giving a defense of the hope that is within you. It's the hope with, within you. It's not that is within everybody else. It's what, what you believe based on Scripture. And that's what you have to defend. And yeah, like Brad said, it's not this you're going to go into battle against these people right. and physically fighting, but you're going to make sure you know what you believe, why you believe it, and being able to communicate that effectively to people, you won't back down. Right. They're, they're not going to hit you with something that will just rattle you to the core of your foundation of faith, and you're going to be like, oh, well, I guess I don't believe in Christianity anymore. Right. And, and that's the point. That's the point. Well, it gets to the question, why is this so important? And it's the question we talked about yesterday and and are going to talk about here. Why are apologetics important? And part of that is because when you don't have a firm stance on your faith, you don't have a firm grasp on what you believe, and you don't understand why you believe it, it is easy then to get knocked around by the waves of doctrine, right? It's, It's then easy to deconstruct. It's easy to become relativistic. It's easy to become progressive. Yeah. Because you don't have a firm foundation and you don't know what the Bible really says. Exactly. And then you also when someone asks you these questions that are tough or can be tough, you don't have an answer. And you're like, "Oh, I never thought of it that way." Okay, it must be false. Right. Cuz our flesh and well, I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> but <laughs> but it is. It, it is. it is so important because here, here's, here are the questions that we get asked all the time as, as Christians, or maybe not all the time, but here's the questions we get asked. You know, well, does God even exist? Right? It's a very common question. How do you even know he exists? I mean, you can obviously answer and say, well, how do you know he doesn't? Right. <laughs> I mean, honestly, the burden of proof is on them. Right. But that's not a great answer. Like, right. you need to know why you believe God exists. If he exists, how do we know he's good? So, how do we know he's this benevolent God who loves and cares for his creation. Right. How do we know that? How, how can we justify the problem of evil, right? And that that is a whole series in and of itself. I mean, yes. there are books upon books 
college classes on yes. the problem of evil yeah. in and of itself. And, and actually, uh, next week, I start a class on the problem of evil. Really? Yeah. And oh, so cool. it's, you know, how do we justify the sin and suffering and evil in the world? Right. Uh, uh, someone came up to us yesterday and was talking about this this problem of evil yeah. and said, you know, it's one thing for us to be able to answer, okay, when people hurt other people, right. we can kind of make sense of that, right? But it's these things that we don't cause. Right. It's things like cancer. It's things like illness, natural disasters, fires, tragedies, Just things that... straight evil in the world. Exactly. Yeah. Things that aren't necessarily caused by our dumbness. Right. And it, <laughs> and it goes into the why do bad things happen to good people right. type deal. Yeah. So... How do we answer that question? That's another reason why apologetics form is we need to have an answer for that. Yeah. Did Jesus really die or did he simply pass out? That's one that has not actually, uh, even after looking at this some more, yes, some more yesterday, it's not as common of a belief as it used to be. Yeah. Because medically speaking, they've kind of been like, look, this is really hard to survive. Yeah. It's pretty easy to say, hey, he didn't just pass out and come out of it and then roll a stone away on his own, overtake right. Roman guards on his own after being beaten and tortured for hours. Yeah. Like that, you know, pretty easy to refute that. But that's a question people have. And that's something that might come up as a, they try to get you, right? They try to have a gotcha question. Yeah. And that's what that is. Another one, did the disciples steal Jesus' body in order to prove that he rose? Or finally, is the Bible even trustworthy? Yeah. And these are all questions that we have probably heard in some form or another within our walk. Yeah. Right? Why is this important? So we can have answers to these questions. So, like I said, these questions have been asked for a long time. So let's look at Matthew chapter 28, verses 12 through 15. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. I'm just going to stop there. Like <laughs> Matthew right away says, hey, they're going to say this as part. They're going to say this is what happened. Yeah. Just know that they were paid off. Right. And that's exactly what this was. So this, this that idea has been around since since the resurrection itself, that he that the disciples stole his body. That's why they rolled the stone in front of the grave, right? So nobody would. So steal no one it. would steal the body. Yeah. So again, having answers to some of these questions. So when we're asked by someone why we believe the gospel is true, why do we believe in God, why do we believe in the Bible, we need to have an answer, and we should be confident in our beliefs. Again, that is why this is so important. You look at uh, the book of Jude, which is not a book that people teach on enough. Maybe we're going to go through it at some point, verse by verse. That's a great idea. Jude doesn't get talked about a lot, even even in our circles, right? Jude, verse 3 says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So why is it important to have a firm grasp on what you believe? Because there are going to be people that try to kill that, try to twist scripture, try to sow disunity within the church, that try to deceive believers and deceive people who claim Christ. That is why this is important. Yeah. And and Jude, this letter goes even further. I mean, right here, verse 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, 
I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. This is saying that it's basically putting it up there as not a salvation issue, but just as important as salvation. As in when Jesus gives the Great Commission, you know, it is our job to go into the world preaching and spreading the good news, spreading the gospel. What goes with it? This. Being able to contend. And as we see in verse 4, it's because these things have crept in. And that's our job, not only to present the gospel, but being able to defend the gospel for those who are coming against it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, we have the greatest story ever told. Yeah. We, not only do we have the greatest story ever told, we have the greatest truth ever truthed. Is that a, is that a word? <laughs> the truth. We'll make it a word. I mean, yeah. The greatest truth ever truthed. You said I'm the way, the truth, and the life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but no, we, we have the only way to heaven. We have the only way to enter heaven. We have the only way to avoid eternal damnation in hell. Period. There are two options, people, heaven or hell. And there's only one way to make sure it's not hell. Yeah. We have that story. We have that knowledge. We have that truth. We cannot hide it, and we cannot go at it haphazardly. We have to know it. We have to be confident in it. Yeah. You look at Paul in the book of Acts. There's a couple uh, parts in Acts where he, you know, he, it tells us that he went to the synagogues and, and preached to the Jews and reasoned with them about the gospel and tried to convince them that Jesus is the Christ and the Messiah that was promised. It talks about how he reasoned with the Greeks, how he was trying to use philosophy and, and, and get them to an understanding that, hey, Jesus is the one true way to heaven. Yeah. So he uses philosophy. He uses, you know, you think about the Greeks, you think about Aristotle, you think about, you know, Plato. Yeah. All these high-minded thinkers and Paul's right there with him. Yeah. And he is convincing them of Jesus. For those of you who want to read that, that's uh, Acts chapter 17. Yeah, Acts 17, 22 through 34 is his actual conversation with them. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. We'd read it, but we're already going to go super long. Yeah. So, <laughs> so now I'm going to get to hermeneutics. And, and so what is hermeneutics? It's a $5 word that just means the science of our interpretation. It is how we interpret the scripture. We are taught this from day one. We learn about tone of voice. We learn about body language. We can tell if someone is joking, if they're angry, if they're sad, if they're depressed by the tone of their voice. Yeah. One sentence can mean a myriad of things based on the tone of voice alone. So we are taught from an early age how to interpret, how to interpret communication and language. We can tell when someone's bored based on their body language, when they're mad based on their body language. It is just as true with scripture. We need to be able to interpret what the Bible is saying, what the authors are intending to say, and what God is intending to say. And that's so important. I mean, you look at the word love in the English language. We've talked about this a lot, right? The word love, we have one word for it, love. Yeah. The Greeks have seven Seven. words for it, all meaning different things. And yet we have it all boiled down to one word, love. So our English language at times is limited just by the way we talk and by the way it's set up. Look at the word bark and look at the word swing. (laughs) There are different definitions for each of these words, right? right? Bark could be what Dexter's doing right now in the background that you can probably hear. That's barking. Also, it could mean the covering on a tree. Right. Right. Swinging. Okay. A swing is a playground equipment, right? It's where you sit on it and you just swing back and forth, or it's what you do with a baseball bat or a golf club. Yeah. Words have different meanings. And so it's so important to sharpen our skills of interpretation, of hermeneutics. And, and it's great because 
the the point of hermeneutics is to get us to the point of First Corinthians chapter two verse ten. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. And then down to 13. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So that is the point of hermeneutics. It's a tool to get us to the point where God is giving us his truths as we're reading them. Yeah. I wrote down here, it says, our ability to interpret the Bible allows us to enjoy right relationship with God. We need to understand how to put into practice what the Bible says, and it is imperative that we understand the intended meaning behind the passages in the Bible. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. So it is, we are in right relationship with God when we are able to interpret the Bible accurately. Yeah. Or it brings us into right relationship with God. It, it leads us to that. Because the more we interpret it correctly, the more we will properly apply it to our lives and the more we will look like Christ. Yeah. Because that's what the whole point of the Bible is, right? Is to tell us the story of redemption. And then once we are redeemed, to then mold ourselves to look like him. Conform to be like Christ. Yeah. Exactly. So we have to have a proper understanding of the Bible. And that gets us into my favorite topic in this whole lesson. And probably in the whole four or five weeks we're going to do this. My favorite topic. My soapbox. The one that I make people mad about all the time when we talk about this. Exegesis versus eisegesis. And it is one that is so commonly misused in today's society and in the Western church. It is mind-boggling to me. And when I start pointing out these things, we had someone even come up to us after this on Sunday and said, you know, I never really thought about it like this. I'm going to try to switch how I read the Bible. Yeah. When we start to talk about this and start pointing out what each of these different ideas look like, you're going to start saying, oh man, I, I, I do that. Or, or I know people who do that. Or, right. you know, hopefully it allows you to, to see it better yeah. and understand what we're talking about better. So let's get into it. Exegesis, another big word, theological word, basically just means we draw out the meaning of the text based on the author's context and discoverable meaning. So when we practice exegesis, when we are reading the Bible exegetically, we are attempting to understand the author's intended meaning. So when you were looking at a passage, let's say you're looking at Romans chapter 8, you need to try to understand what Paul was talking about in the context of the book of Romans. Start there. Start with the chapter before, the chapter after. Yeah. Where is Where does this fit in to what Paul is writing? What words is it is he using? How has he used those words other in other places yeah. in his writings? It goes deep. Yeah, I made the comment yesterday, it's why pastors have such a high calling. It's because they are they are to really dive deep into the word. Not just gloss over it, not just look at it and, and pull out what they think it means or what they want it to mean. Yeah. But really look at it. Parse the language. I mean, get I'm not saying you have to be a Greek theologian by any means or no or fluent in Greek. Just do a little word study on a word that you see occurring a lot. Yeah. If you see the same word over and over again, do a little word study on that. See how it's used elsewhere in the Bible and see what it means. Or if you have different translations and there are different words used in that specific point of reference, look up the actual Greek word to it so that you actually know which translation is translating it the best. Right. So again, exegesis, it is trying to discover the intended meaning behind the passage. Yeah. That is in stark contrast to eisegesis, which we'll get into in just a second, because exegesis, not just in my opinion, I, I think it's pretty much a, so- a solid fact. Exegesis is the only proper way to study the Bible. Yes. Period. Because as you're going to see here in just a second, eisegesis gets very dangerous. Yeah. 
So exegesis. It's why I'm a big fan of exegetical preaching. It's not something that happens often anymore, it feels like. We get a lot of topical messages. We get a lot of things where we take this overarching theme Mm -hmm. and pull out passages to meet that criteria. Now, to be fair, the sermon I preached a number of months back was a topical sermon. It was a one-off, though. It was a one-off. It wasn't a series or anything. It was a topical sermon, and it wasn't... I didn't take a passage and break it down verse by verse, yeah. which I I personally prefer. Right. I prefer that in my preaching and, and in my teaching. And if I get to teach or when I get to teach, that's what I like to do. Yeah. But that, that's what we did with Romans. That's it what we did through Romans. Exegetical expository. Yeah. Preaching and teaching. Yeah. And, and that is my preferred method. Now, it doesn't mean there's not a time and a place for topical stuff. Right. There absolutely is. But again, you start to creep into eisegesis when you go topical. And, and yep. let's just go ahead and get into eisegesis. What does that mean? So eisegesis occurs when we impose our own interpretation of the text on the text itself. So we read a meaning into the text. It's the most dangerous approach to reading the Bible. It's how churches in the West have drifted from solid biblical teaching to watered-down fluff. It's how false teachers like Joel Osteen, Kenneth Copeland, Todd White, Stephen Furtick have all gained so much popularity. Because what they're doing is they are taking one verse or two verses or even multiple verses just throughout the Bible and saying, okay, this means this. And they're twisting scripture to make sure that it means what they say it means. Yeah. They're making it watered down. They're making it sound good, ear pleasing, using it for nefarious purposes to try to get, you know, build their own wealth right. or their own popularity or their own status. And it's very dangerous. It's also the reason progressive Christianity and deconstruction have crept into the church in the West. Yeah. Because without a proper exegesis of the scriptures, you can pick and choose what you want to believe out of it. Yeah. Right? Let me just kind of break this down a little bit. When we're reading the Bible in this way, we are starting with with what we think it means already. Before we even read it, we're saying this is what the Bible says and what it means. So we begin with the meaning and we find ways to make scripture say that. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yep. We we Bringing our own bent into scripture. Exactly. And we're all guilty of it on some level. Don't get me wrong. Oh, yeah. Because we all have biases. We all have opinions. We all have views. We all have feelings. We, we have a tendency to do that. We're human. Yep. But that's not what... That's, that's dangerous. It's also where emotions get in the way. I just mentioned we all have feelings. It's where emotions get in the way. Yeah. It's where you hear phrases like, I couldn't serve a God who... Yeah. I can't serve a God who cond- condemns homosexuality. Right. Well, you can't serve the God of the Bible then. And you're not serving the God of the Bible if you think that he does not condemn homosexuality. Right. If you think that he is condoning of that lifestyle or, or you know, even go so far as to say the transgender movement and this non-binary nonsense and this transgenderism stuff, that's not the God of the Bible. Right. Because he's destroyed cities over that. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Literally. He has literally destroyed cities over these types of sin. So again, we read our feelings into it and we say, well, I don't think God, I I don't think God would condemn my life, me being happy. Right. No, he doesn't. He doesn't condemn you being happy as long as you're happy in him. Right. Right? For the right reasons. For the right reasons. <clears throat> if you're happy by sinning, which our flesh is, then yeah, he's going to condemn that. Yeah. Period. And, and with Isaac Jesus, with this progressive movement, with this deconstruction movement, this is where you get into the, the pastors of these movements. They go allegorical. They go metaphorical when they go into scripture. So Jonah, Jonah being in the belly of the whale, they like, oh no, uh, that was metaphorical. That didn't actually happen. And what we believe based on scripture is no that actually happened actually happened that was yeah. a, that was a real true story yeah there was an old church father back in the uh, i want to say mid 3rd century uh, he was nicknamed uh, golden tongue i forgot his name i need to look it up but he he was very 
big against and preaching against this type of teaching. Because again, none of this stuff is new. Correct. This has been around since the beginning of the church age. And he was preaching against that. And in his sermons, he would he would even come out and be like, when it says the grass was green, I'm going to take it as the grass was green. I'm yeah. not going to take it as some metaphorical of, oh, it was the feeling that the grass was having at that moment. It's like, no, we'll get into it at a later time, but you know, with the way Brad and I get into and interpret scripture, we, we look at contextual, historical, grammatical, yeah, and it, it all fits together. And it's so important. It's where you get sermons like about David and Goliath. What, what giant are you facing in your life right now? Right. It's where you get those types of sermons that sound good and are motivational and honestly have a lot, have nuggets of truth in them. That's the issue with you. With, with these false teachers is there are nuggets of truth in what they say. There has to be, or else you would be able to see right through it immediately. There have to be nuggets of truth. God is love. Of course God is love. But they twist it. They twist the scripture, and they allow feelings to get in the way. So they come up with a meaning that we think makes sense, or a meaning that makes us feel good, and we read that into the text. Yeah. So I think of like, when you're at a Bible study, or when you hear someone from the stage say something to the effect of, what this verse means to me. Mm. Or you're at a Bible study and the, the, the leader asks you, what does that verse mean to you? Or I interpret this to mean. Or I, yeah, yeah, exactly. I interpret this verse to mean this. Or every time I read this verse, I get a different interpretation. Right. That's I said, Jesus, guys. Like, that's dangerous. Dangerous. Because we had a great question posed to us by one of the guys yesterday. Yeah. Who asked basically the same question. He's like, okay, why is it that I can read the same verse over and over again and get different meanings out of it? Well... That's there aren't different meanings. Question. It's a great question. And yeah. I, I think and it's a tough it's a tough question to wrestle with. But I think to kind of simply answer it in the way we answered it yesterday was the text means what the text means. All right. And it is intended to mean what the author intended it to mean and what God intended it to mean. We can get different applications out of each verse, right? Mm-hmm. And we and we might read it and be like, oh man, I can apply this this way. Like this th- I didn't think of this last time I read this verse. Man, this could really apply to me where I can do something with this verse. Right. The meaning stays the same, but how you apply that meaning might look a little differently. Right. Or, and this happens, and professors talk about this, pastors talk about this, where they'll read the same passage 10 times, pick out different meanings throughout the passage. Yeah. Not an overall, like, this verse means something different today than it did yesterday. But like, oh, man, I focused on verse 2 last time I read this. Man, verse 3. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. And God will show you different things and point out different truths that are always there. We just miss them because we're human. Right. But the meaning doesn't change. That That's where we get in Hebrews chapter four, where it says, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's living and it's active. That is the living and active portion of it. That you can go through, read a verse, and get some, just this exponential thing out of it. And then an hour later, read the same verse and be like, wow, I did not see this because I was looking at this. And that's the living active part of it. God is opening your eyes and inclining your ears and softening your heart at different points in time to different points of scripture. Right. The meaning's the same. Yeah. The meaning is the meaning. Never changes. It's a closed canon, meaning there's no new revelation. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about that at some point today. But it, the meaning is the meaning. Yeah. How we apply it and how God reveals that to us, that can vary. Yeah. But it means what it means. You know, I, and again, I just kind of restating this, and I really want to get this through to people and, and make sure people understand. We ignore the context of the passage when we're reading it eis- eisegetically. Mm-hmm. We ignore 
the context of the passage. We pick a verse, we pick a sentence, we pick a little paragraph or a phrase, and we rid it completely of its context. We don't yes. worry about what is said before, what is said after, where it fits in the grand scheme of things. We don't even worry, we don't worry about that, and we make sure it fits our feelings and our beliefs. Yeah. Or, and this is a big problem nowadays, we redefine words. <laughs> yes. Right? Yeah. Well, it really can't mean that. Right. It has to mean this. No, the word man means man. Yep. Or the word day means day. Like, you can't sit here and redefine words that have been, that have meant the same thing for thousands of years. Yeah. Up until five minutes ago, the word woman meant a, a woman. <laughs> right? We can't just redefine these words. Yeah. And yeah. we're doing that with scripture. The West, people, especially in the West, I always say the West because I don't think this problem is as prevalent in countries that are facing persecution because they love the word more than we do. Right. Because <laughs> it's so hard to get and they cherish it. Yeah. Better than we do. So I pick on the West because that's our context. That's where we live. And that's where I think all these issues are coming from. We redefine words. The church in the West is redefining words. Mm -hmm. It's how you have churches that have rainbow flags in front of them. Yeah. It's how you have churches that are affirming the BLM movement. Not the phrase Black Lives Matter. The actual organization behind it that is... Not anything like the phrase says. Right. It's how you have these churches that are that are falling for the social justice movement and falling for this progressive movement. Yeah. And it's how you have people like Kevin Max from DC Talk who just completely dis- like dissects the scripture, pulls it completely apart, and makes it fit the way he wants to believe. Yeah. Because he feels like, oh, it's too mean to women. So I'm going to take out all these parts about men being leaders and just leave women in. Right. This is where Jesus leads. Right. Great example, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We've said it on this podcast before when we did verses out of context. Woo, I can run a marathon. (laughs) Yay. No, (laughs) it's not what that verse means. That verse means in whatever situation you find yourself in, you're content because you have Christ. Yeah. You can do all things to Christ, whether I'm rich, whether I'm poor, whether I'm in prison, whether I'm home. I can do all things to Christ who strengthens me because he provides the strength to get through whatever situation I'm in. Yes. That is Paul's message in Philippians 4. Nothing to do with running a marathon. Nothing to do with winning a game, winning a championship, asking a girl out, asking a guy. It has nothing to do with any of those things. It's all about, ultimately, finances. That yeah. passage. <clears throat> it's all about finances. That and contemplating if your head is going to be chopped off. Also true. <laughs> as Paul, as it happened to Paul. Yeah. yeah. So that's an example of, of Jesus. We mm-hmm. take that verse and we make it mean, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you not to harm you. Great passage. We talked about that again in one of mm-hmm. our episodes about it. We've used it out of context. Yep. But again, what does it mean in context? What is that verse actually saying? It's more than just a nice pithy little saying to cross the on a pillow. Right. Right? It is. We also have the tendency as Christians, as believers, as humans, to have a point of view and read that into every passage. So I have the point of view of of predestination. I kind of lean that direction. I see that in scripture. Does that mean every verse talks about predestination? No. <laughs> I mean, honestly, it doesn't though, yeah, right? Like there are verses yeah. that are have nothing to do in that particular context about predestination. Exactly. Yeah. Same with free will. People have this idea of free will and they have this bent towards ultimate free will, not just well, I I believe in free will, but it's a different definition. Right. We right. redefine words. Right. But ultimate free will, and they read that into every single passage. That's not what the Bible is, yes. right? Like the Bible is uh, talks about many different subjects. Overarching theme, story of redemption, and how God redeems mankind. Yeah. Yes, that is the ultimate overarching theme. But within that, there are different themes that are independent of each other. Yeah. So reading your ideas into the passage is eisegesis. Yeah. Letting your feelings get in the way. And just to kind of wrap this up, at 
best, eisegesis is just a lazy way to read the Bible. At best. That is the best case scenario. Yeah. Is it's just lazy. At worst, it's heretical. Yeah. And at worst, it's leading people away from God. Yeah. Again, I think of the progressive movement and the deconstruction movement. Yeah. All right. We can have debates about free will and predestination and still all be believers and still all trust in the same God. Yeah. But what I'm talking about here is this idea of watering down the gospel, watering down the commands of the Bible and obedience to its commands and its its morals and its, yeah. you know, edicts. And blatantly saying scripture doesn't mean what it says. And and, and blatantly, yeah, having a yeah. low view of scripture. <clears throat> well, and we've talked about it too, of what it also is, is it's an irreverence. It's having no reverence to scripture and it's having no fear or a lack of fear of yeah. God. To be able to look at scripture in this way tells me, and it shows me in your life that you do not fear the God of the universe. Right. You do not fear Yahweh, the way that the Israelites did when they wouldn't even spell Yahweh out. They had right. to abbreviate it. Yeah. You do not have the fear of God in you. Or the, the priests could only enter the Holy of Holies, enter the presence of God once a year. Once a year. And even then, if they did one thing wrong, they were struck dead. <sighs> yeah. One thing. One misstep, one miscue, they were struck dead. Now, granted, that's the old covenant, and we can go boldly before the throne room mm-hmm. of God, but that's the same God. It's the same God that struck people down for yeah. one mistake, from one mistake, right? Right. So we do. We we have an irreverence of God and the irreverence of the Scripture. We have a low view of Scripture. Yes. And that is what Austin and I are. One of the things we're trying to fight with doing this podcast. Yeah. We we want to have a high view of Scripture and understand that it is inerrant, infallible, and it is perfect for reproof. Reproach, rebuking, rebuking, correcting, exhorting, exhorting, honoring, loving, all those yeah. things. It's Second Timothy, by the way. <laughs> so without proper hermeneutics, without a proper interpretation of Scripture, apologetics is essentially useless. Yeah. Because you have no leg to stand on because you don't know what the Bible is actually saying. You don't know what you believe. And if you don't know what you believe, how, you're, how are you going to defend it? So in order to be able to... So- solidly defend what we believe, why we believe it, we have to properly interpret the Bible and its meaning and avoid eisegesis at all costs. Yes. Because again, it is lazy at best, heretical at worst. Yeah. And heretical, it's bad. It's a bad thing. It's a bad thing. It's a bad thing. It's a bad thing. You might get yelled at by me on a podcast for being heretical. <laughs> That's my little rant on exegesis, eisegesis. Exegesis good, eisegesis bad. Mm-hmm. If you want more on that, talk to us, reach out to us. We will love to get into that more because there's a lot more we could dive into on that. Yeah. We are going to next week. We're going to talk about exegesis a lot next week. Yes. Because we're talking about how we study the Bible. So with that, I have talked way too much. Austin, it is your turn. Let's go through what you have. This is what we did yesterday, by the way, or Sunday, by the way, yep. as we, I kind of did this broad overview of, of kind of what we're doing. And then Austin kind of narrowed in on a few things and, yep. and dove into those. So. Austin, dive in, and I might stop talking for a while. Cool. You can hop in, too, if you want. <laughs> so, yeah, preparing for this, which is cool. So, Brad and I, we we come at it from a different bent on both sides. Brad comes from it from a long time going through these these courses, these classes. He's done the apologetics. He's, he's getting his degree in apologetics. Versus me, I've never even been through an apologetics class. The difference with Brad and I is it, with me, with my parents growing up, I was raised 
in an apologetic home. Every, every, the way my parents would approach scripture was from an apologetic stance of, no, this is what we believe, why we believe it, and this is how we communicate it effectively. So coming at it from that standpoint of, I, I didn't go through the classes or courses that a lot of people did, but I was raised this way. Yeah. So, and, and, and I love it. Which Thank honestly you, Mom and may Dad. be a higher advantage than anything I've gone through. <laughs> And, but and that's because we said that yesterday. Of, you know, I didn't even know a lot of these words yeah. <laughs> until I started hanging out with you. The whole exegesis and eisegesis and stuff like that, and, which is cool because being able to know the vernacular so that, one, it, it does help. It does help with knowing what you believe while you believe it and communicating it effectively, especially in this day and age. Now, you're not going to go to an unbeliever atheist and be like, this is how I exegesis uh, scripture. Yeah. yeah, there's no fruit or point in that. But for us, it is important. Yeah. Like I said, we're not having these Carl Sagan-esque debates right, right with people. Hey, and if you're preparing for life. that, dude, all power to you, Absolutely. Man. I'd love yeah. to see you on YouTube right? Yeah, with, with those debates. Yeah. But no. That's not what we're doing. It's just, it's again, it's good to have a foundation. You need to know your belief system better than they do, for sure. And really, you kind of need to know how to answer the questions better than they know yeah. how to answer the questions. Right? And it all goes back to Scripture. Well, how well do you know Scripture? Just a very quick little soliloquy here. When I first started getting tattooed by my by my guy, Kevin, shout out, Kevin. You're not listening, but still shout out. Man, he he knows the Bible very well. I mean, very well. He will quote scripture to you. He will talk about the history of the church. And he does it, but he is not a believer. And he uses the Bible to try to disprove the Bible, Mm. right? And he does a... He, at first... Did a gra- I was 18 years old, fresh into Bible college, and didn't have a ton of you know st- strong knowledge on this. So he he talked circles around me yeah. at first, yeah. right? He knew the Bible better than I did, and that actually kind of spurred me on to be like, no, no, <laughs> I need to, I need to get better at this so I can actually answer some of these questions right. and answer some of these rebuttals. Yeah, because he he does he he does good. Yeah, so that's a, a everyday example of when this would be helpful. Well, and that is you doing apologetics. Yeah, to to him and with him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, preparing for this, uh, a lot of the the guys I listen to, uh, Vody Bachman is is number one. Paul Washer, James White. I, I'm actually going through a book right now, uh, plugging it. Not like we're getting paid or anything. So Vody Bachman wrote a a book. It's called Expository Apologetics. By, by Vody Bachman. It's answering objections with the power of the word. And uh, I, I, using a lot of his stuff for this because he he just says it's so much more eloquent than I can. James White, he's another uh, leading leading apologist, which if you guys ever get time, look look him up and just look and listen to some of their, their debates that they, they have. It's just amazing. So diving in, I, I want to look at some falsehoods. Falsehoods of apologetics. Uh, for one, apologetics is the is only for the Green Berets or the Navy SEALs of the faith, i.e. pastors, seminary students, professors, Vody Bauckham, John MacArthur, Paul Washer, R.E. Sproul, those guys of the world. It's only for them. You have to be well-versed in the knowledge of topics like history, logic, philosophy, science, all world religions, all cults, and all heresies. In other words, it requires a level of confidence, if not bordering on the line of arrogance and cockiness. And it, uh, the, these falsehoods that, uh, as uh, Vody Bauckham would say, it's like, oh, 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 look at the apologist. Oh, look, just in awe as they walk by. And, and you know, it, it's great that we have those guys. It, it is, because we, we have some very smart people in this world that we need some really smart people in the Christian world that is 
that they're able to stand up and talk with them. It's that mentality of you have to be the best of the best. You have to be the purebred knight in your faith to even be able to defend what you believe. And it's sim- just simply not true. Right. Uh, the, knowing history and logic, philosophy and science is not a prerequisite to be able to defend what you believe. Now, the question is, do these help? Well, yeah, yeah, they do. If you can come into a conversation with a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon, being able to know the difference is in their Bible versus ours, versus what they believe Jesus is versus what we believe Jesus is. Being able to talk to the atheist and know what, okay, what does atheism mean? If you know these things, it, it does. It makes it much easier to defend what you believe. The other one is having a level of confidence. To be confident in scripture. Be confident in what you know of scripture. And making sure it does not borderline on being cocky or arrogant. Because that that is not a good thing. As what Paul would say in his letters, he, he boasts in Christ. He does not boast in his own works. Well, the Bible also says knowledge puffs up. Exactly. And, and can make you arrogant. You, mm-hmm. Gosh, I, I saw that a lot in seminary. Yeah. I did. You, you see people like, man, you are not pleasant to be around. Well, that's why seminary students get a bad rap. Yeah. I, I, I have not liked that at all for a long time because it was it was building someone up and they are so smart and intellectual and i don't even want to have a conversation with you peasants because you don't know what i know and and there is and it, it gives the rest of us a bad rap so yeah just a couple falsehoods the next is apologetics is not what is it not apologetics is not primarily the persuasion of an individual now yes you are trying to persuade somebody but it is not primarily the persuasion of an individual. You cannot have the mentality of, I just need to convince this person in a conversation to Christianity. Because we cannot create a born-again experience through intellectual persuasion. We are not here to change their mind or to persuade them to believe what we believe. We are presenting the truth in a clear and concise way. Then, it is up to them whether or not they will change their mind to agree with the truth. And it is up to God to soften their hearts and open their eyes. As we see in Hebrews chapter 4 verses 12 through 13 for the word of god is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart and no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account so th- that's it when you are presenting the truth to people you're not coming at it like oh i really want to win this debate oh i i just need to squish these questions so that they they understand my my point of view. It, no, you're you're presenting the truth and you're praying that God softens their heart and opens their mind. As it says in Hebrews, it's living and active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. If you're presenting the truth, you're presenting these facts on scripture and it's not cutting to their heart, that isn't because it's not effective. It's not because scripture can't do what you want it to do. It's because God is not allowing it to happen at that time. That's not saying it won't ever happen. Right. It's just that it's not going to happen at that time. It also doesn't mean that you quit or you give up. Just need if, to keep that in mind. And if they are wanting to engage with you, engage with them. Yeah. That is a that is a sign that they're open to this. It's a sign that their hearts may be softening. Again, like you said, it may not be immediate. It may not happen right away. It may not even happen at a point where you'll see them. See it, it may- happen. It may take... Or it may never happen. 15 to 20 years for this one person. But but if they are still willing to engage with you, that means there's something at work potentially there. And and your job is to be 
strong enough in your faith and strong enough in your beliefs to defend it and to say this is why not only what i believe but why i believe it exactly and and there is no harm especially in a scenario like with with a friend or with someone that you know that you do speak with on a regular basis there's no harm in saying you know what that's a great question let me get back to you yes we didn't say that yesterday no we didn't that is that is actually very important it is important to be able to do that because first of all that actually kind of gives you some credibility yes because they're going to think okay cool like he's he wants to answer this question he's he's gonna look it up and and come up with an answer well and the big part of it is they see oh you're not just making stuff up right you're not just trying to come up with an answer right yeah and again if you start just coming up with stuff on the fly you are probably gonna make mistakes and tell them something that's just flat out wrong heretical maybe (laughs) yeah (laughs) well yeah that's why it's important because having the mentality of you are there for their soul so if you are trying to lead them to christ but you're not doing it scripturally the way that the scripture says and if you don't know the answer therefore you're just swinging by the seat of your pants right and you do say something heretical, and they follow that heretical right. teaching, right. you are now responsible for putting a stumbling stone in front of your brother or sister. Right. And that you will be judged for. So that it is. It is important. Now, that's not to scare you away from apologetics. It is supposed to entice you in, I need to know what I believe, why I believe it, right. and I need to communicate it effectively. Right. Now we're going to get into the different forms of apologetics. Uh, apologetics is kind of a, I don't want to say a broad term, but... It encompasses a variety of multiple ways to do it. I'm going to go through four because these are the four main and common ways people use apologetics. Uh, The first one is classical. Classical apologetics has been called a two-step method. The first step is to prove the existence of God via the traditional theistic's theistic proves. This method holds to the possibility of natural theology, the ability for reason to demonstrate God's existence. The first step does not prove Christianity, only monotheism, one God. The second step is to prove the veracity of Christianity by showing, for example, but not necessarily in this exact fashion, that miracles are possible. The Bible is reliable. Jesus claimed and proved himself to be God, etc. It is called the classical method because it has been the classical traditional method used throughout the ages. Some proponents include St. Augustine or Augustine Enselim, another Thomas Aquinas, uh, William Paley, others such as B.B. Uh, Warfield or, or Norman Geisler and uh, a bigger one being R.C. Sproul. The, these are guys that would use it. Uh, St. Augustine, he was... Uh, I want to say no. He was yeah. He was early to mid third century because he was one of the bigger proponents of the Nicene Creed. He right. was there during the Council of Nicaea. So th- this was his classical or traditional way of debating. I guess you would say another is evidential. Evidential apologetics avoid an attempt to demonstrate God exists. Some do this because they don't think natural theology is possible. Others think it is simply easier to start with the biblical case. They jump straight to evidences for showing that Christianity is true from fields such as history and archaeology. To them, this bypasses difficult philosophical arguments and objections. People are ordinarily more prone to understanding history and the like. The thinking here is, if we can show the Bible to be reliable and that Jesus was raised from the dead, then a reasonable person will be 
convinced that Christianity is true. Such would include the existence of God. Proponents of this would be uh, Josh McDowell, Josh Butler, Gary Habermas, uh, Michael Lacona, and Which many, I've read a few others. of their books, and then, actually I'm reading a few of them now. I think Habermas does a lot with the resurrection. He, yes. He reads, writes a lot of stuff on the resurrection of Christ. Um, I think of Lee Strobel. We didn't mention him. I, no, I think yeah. of Lee Strobel as being someone who would be evidentiary in nature. Yeah. Because, I mean, his, his story is fascinating, how he came to know Christ, and he tried to do it from a factual standpoint, right? right? Provable facts, not philosophy, not kind of out there thinking to draw you in logically, but right. like hard, verifiable facts. Right. Is what he was seeking to find. Yeah, exactly. Next is experiential or narratival. Nar- narrative. I just don't like that word. Narrative, but it's a real <laughs> word. <laughs> Are uh, you sure? I, I'm pretty sure. Uh, so some Christians appeal primarily, if not exclusively, to experience experience as evidence for Christian faith. Some appeal to religious experience in general. Others appeal to special religious experiences. Some who focus on mystical experiences and others who identify what they believe are particularly supernatural conversion experiences. There are obviously some significant differences under the broader experiential umbrella, but it is important to note that at best, general experience establishes credibility for belief in a supreme being of some kind, not necessarily a theistic god. In the end, the value of general, unspecific religious experience is of limited value for a distinctly Christian apologetics. The last one is presuppositional. Presuppositional apologetics. This form of apologetics is not interested in trying to persuade atheists with worldly logic, science, or experience. Instead, presuppositional apologetics speaks of God in the same way the apostles, the prophets, spoke in scripture. That is, they don't attempt to prove God's existence, they assume God's existence, and anchor their central defense of the gospel in scripture. Essentially, in presuppositional apologetics, the preacher proclaims the truth about God and allows the Holy Spirit to change the heart and mind. Now, as I go forward, that's my form of apologetics. That That is how I come into topics and conversations. I come into it from a presuptional, presuppositional way. But also, as, as we go through, we'll realize that a good, apolo- a good apologist will use all of them. Yeah. And uh, and even like R.C. Sproul looking at Spurgeon, at John Piper, all these guys, Vody Bauckham, they, they do. They look at evidence. They look at a classical form. They, they do all this. Meanwhile, using scripture. And it all kind of depends on who you're talking to. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's at least that's a big part of it. Are you going to lean heavier on classical or presuppositional or whatever based on who you're talking to? Yeah. I do think that makes a big difference and and the setting that you're in, yeah. right? I mean, you're going to approach an atheist, a staunch atheist, a little differently than you're going to approach an Orthodox Jew. Yeah. Right? Exactly. A- a- or or a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness, to use examples we've used yeah. previously. You're going to approach those a little differently, and, and you're going to have subtle differences in each of those apologetic encounters. Yeah. Yeah. And act- that gets into, so how how do you defend your faith? But, but yeah, looking at, okay, C.S. Lewis. If you guys ever get the chance to read C.S. Lewis's The Most Reluctant Convert, do it. C.S. Lewis was a staunch atheist. He grew up in a Christian home. He grew up with the truth. Um, He went away from the truth. And I mean, brilliant, brilliant man. One of the smartest men I've, I've read books from. But it took a classical form of apologetics from his friends, from his friend J.R.R. Tolkien, from these guys that he he went to, 
I forgot what college he went, what university he went to. It wasn't Harvard. It was a different one. But anyway. Oxford? It might have been. Yes. Might have been Oxford. Yeah. Yeah. And it took this philosophical conversation to get him from atheism to theism, getting him to believe in a God that there may be a God out there, and then from theism to Christianity. And and it, it takes these brilliant men like J.R.R. Tolkien that God placed in yeah, C.S. Lewis's absolutely. life to get him where he needed to be. Just amazing. Yeah, if you get a chance to read it, do it. And I forget where I meant, what part I mentioned this, but God is a God of order and logic. Mm. And so it makes sense that there are times when logic and reasoning is going to be the way to go because god is a god of order and logic he's not a god of chaos he's not a god of confusion right right he is a god of order he he created things orderly he talks about the church and how the church services should be done in an orderly fashion right when talking about some of the speaking in tongues and different things that was going on at that time church should be done in an orderly fashion so god does not like chaos and so in my mind the way my mind works christianity first of all the idea of god is a logical idea yes just a God, theism, is logical to me because how in the world could this be random? Yes. There's no, that, that that does not make sense to me. I'm not a scientist. Don't get me wrong. I don't claim to be a scientist. I don't have all the ins and outs of the Big Bang Theory, quote unquote. Yeah. Whatever. But I could not wrap my mind around this idea that we just came out of ooh, right? Chaos that, theory. That, out of chaos out of came chaos serenity. came order. Yeah. Right? That doesn't make sense. Yeah. So I like using logic for this. Mm-hmm. I, I do have a more classical lean to, to my apologetics approach, because I think we can logically come to the conclusion that not only there is a God, but that God is Yahweh. Yes. And that when we can get someone to the point where we say, okay, there, there has to be a God. There has to be a creator yeah. to this. What makes the most sense? Buddha? Muhammad? Or, or not Muhammad, Allah. Krish- Allah, Allah Krishna, Krishna, the Hin- Zeus, whatever, Hindu Zeus. gods, however many those, there are oh, of yeah. those. What makes the most sense logically? Right. And based on the evidence, based on the facts, and based on scripture, we know that Christianity makes the most sense. Yeah. Well, if you really break it down. Where do we get the word logic from? It comes from, it's the root word of logos. Logos, we get the word logic. Uh, looking at people like Aristotle, these great minds of Greek philosophy. Aristotle put together, it's the three pillars of persuasive communication. It is the ethos, pathos, and logos. The ethos being your appeal to ethics. Appeal to ethics. The the pathos is your appeal to emotion. Yeah. Yeah. And then the logos is your appeal to logic and reason. If you want to get deep into your apologetics and sharpening your apologetic sword, that the three pillars of persuasive communication would actually be very beneficial for you because it is very effective. Everybody uses it. (laughs) The way they do commercials on the TV, they use the three pillars of persuasive communication. Uh, Lawyers, they use this. You have so many people that use this every day. Now, a lot of people don't know exactly what it is. They've just been taught how to use it, but that's where it comes from. And very definitely classically, your classical apologetics, it makes it easier to approach somebody that way. So just a side note. So yeah, how do you defend your faith? What form of apologetics you use will often depend on who you're speaking to and in what setting. Your theology determines your apologetics. How you study God, his word, and your own spiritual gifts will determine how you defend the faith to someone. For example, if your spiritual gift is helping or giving or serving gifts, you'll likely take more of an experiential apologetics route and rely on testimonies and life experiences. 
On the other hand, if your spiritual gift is prophecy or teaching, you may take more of a presuppositional classical route. And and that's what Brad and I do. We take more of that classical route, more of the presuppositional route, just because that that is our our, our spiritual gifts are more led towards teaching and prophesying. Again, like you said, who you're talking to makes a difference. If I'm talking to a believer who is struggling with their faith, I am leaning heavy on the presuppositional approach. Mm Right, I am talking. I am talking this person through scripture, through passages, through the Bible. What God's word says. If I'm talking to somebody who doesn't have much of a belief system, doesn't really know much about Christianity, doesn't think the Bible is valid. Yes, I'm going to use the Bible, but I'm also going to try to appeal to the logic, and I'm going to try to appeal to that. Okay, look, let's get you to point A. Yeah, and and we'll start moving you towards point B and C. Now, of course, I'm going to quote scripture. I'm going to talk about scripture. Right, but if they don't have any appreciation for scripture or, or hold they to don't see validity, the validity at all. Yeah. It's a little tough to use it at, at times, I think. Yeah. The way Brad and I approach it is we know that scripture is the only authority ever, ever. It's God's word. It's perfect. It's, into, it's an infallible. The vast majority of, of Western civilization is founded on truths and principles found in the Bible. Exactly. Just look at the Ten Commandments. <clears throat> right. Why do we have laws against murder? Because we know that murder is wrong. And where does it say that? In Exodus. In Exodus, <laughs> exactly. And so whenever we come into this, I guess you would call it a debate, <clears throat> or just defending our faith to someone, say classically. There, there's actually a story I heard Vody Bachman talk about. It was this guy who came into, I, I, I don't know if it's like a university or college or something, and he was giving a, a lecture. So the first, for the first hour, it was a lecture or something like that. The next hour was Q&A. And during the Q&A, someone came up to the mic and, and basically said, well, you, basically you're bringing your your Christian values and Bible and stuff into this, this Q&A and this conversation and lecture. And the guy said, well, whoa, whoa, I, I haven't, I've been talking for like an hour and a half and I haven't brought up anything about the Gospels or Christianity at all. And that statement actually got him a lot of flack in the Christian community because a, a, a lot of Christians, I, I, I take this route as well, of how can you talk for an hour and a half to two hours and not once mention scripture, not once mention the gospel. I look at that as there is a time and place for that. If you are talking to people that have no validity, they don't think scripture has any validity, then you need to be able to talk in that way. The way that Brad and I do it is knowing that this is the only authority, I will not set it aside. Even in a classical conversation debate, knowing that they don't believe in scripture, again, presuppositional. Classical, presuppositional. My presupposition is based on scripture. And if they come and say, oh, well, I don't believe in scripture, so it has no validity. It's like, well, that's fine, but I'm not going to stop using it because I believe it's the only authority. I'm not going to ask you to leave behind your presuppositions because that's what you believe. So I'm not going to drop mine. And all the meanwhile, have a classical philosophical discussion, but I will always bring it back to scripture. Always. And and that's just the form I take. So yeah, I am teaching from a presuppositional expository apologetic standpoint. So next, this is from Vody, and I I love it. it. It says... The gospel is limited and limiting. And the first you hear it and you're like, whoa, this is heretical. And just bear with us. So the gospel is limited and limiting. When defending the faith, there are really only six to eight categories of opposition to the gospel. Once we know the answers to those categories, 
we should be able to answer any question within those categories. So, why is the gospel limited in limiting? Well, it's limited because we are operating from a closed canon. We believe scripture is whole and closed, in that there are no new truths being revealed. There are no new books being added to scripture. As we get into the next couple of weeks, we'll actually dive into why the canon is the way it is, why was it put together in that fashion, when was it put together in that, that fashion, and we'll dive into that. A lot of misconceptions. A lot of mis- misconceptions, yeah. But as of right now, we just need to know that it's limiting. As in, it is closed, it's perfect, we don't need to add anything else. That's it. We also can't take anything away from it either. That too. It's closed. Yeah. yeah. Uh, second, limiting. The objections that must be answered cannot exceed the propositions being put Fourth, I'm going to read that again. The objections that must be answered cannot exceed the propositions being put forth. Therefore, there are a limited number of objections. These objections to the gospel are not new. There was more opposition to the gospel back at the beginning when the gospel seemed new and radical, whereas now, because all the questions that have been asked have now been answered, we are now simply refamiliarizing ourselves with the answers, where to find them, and how to apply them in our lives. So next, to whom are you giving a defense of the faith? Another reference from Vody. Um, I, a lot of, again, a lot of this from Vody. Just, I, I love it. I love his form of apologetics. He, he is presuppositional expository apologetics. I love it. So it, he, he puts it this way. He's like, if, if you are like the king and you're going to ask your, your general, you're going to look at your general. If I look at, you look at a general and say, defend, the general is going to look at you and say, defend what? You know, it, it, you can't just look at somebody and say, go defend, run around with a chicken with your head cut off, be like, <laughs> well, what do I defend? How you mount design structure Inform your defense all depends on what you are defending. Things you would want to take into account while mounting your defense is one, the lay of the land. What is the environment you're in? Church, work, school, your community, the Middle East? Who is the enemy? Or who are you having this discussion with? To whom are you defending the faith against? Three, where is the enemy coming from? What is this individual's background and beliefs? To better defend your faith, to better mount your defense, you need to know these things. You need to know to whom you're giving the defense to, what their background is, the way they're going to be coming against you, the questions that they're asking, and exactly where are you? Are you within the church talking to other believers? Are you at work, at school, community? Are you in the Middle East talking to Muslims? You need to know these things. And I want to point out, too, that this goes beyond, and this was kind of brought up yesterday, this goes beyond sharing the gospel. All right, this this is... This is a little deeper. This is kind of that next conversation with someone who has questions. Yes. They don't just immediately accept the gospel that you present to them. This is not evangelizing. This this is a step beyond evangelizing. Right. Right? So that person you're witnessing to on the streets or, or the person you're witnessing to at work, that's evangelism. Eva- go share the gospel. Right. Right? Preach the gospel. That This apologetics comes into play when someone says, okay, yes, but what about this? Right. Or how can you say this is true when this is... X, Y, Z, fill in the blank with whatever question they have. This is being able to defend what you just told them, the faith that you have in Christ as... You know, the perfect sacrifice that died on the cross rose again three days later. Yeah. That's what this is. This is beyond your just basic evangelism or even beyond the basic meeting of someone's needs. The the conversation we had yesterday about sharing a blanket 
and uh, a sandwich and a coat with a homeless person. Yeah. Like this goes beyond that. Okay. That this that may not be the time to have this conversation about the ontological debate about right. Christ. Like that's yeah. not what this is. This is again a little bit deeper than just sharing. Not just sharing. The, and I hate to say that. I'm not minimalizing sharing the gospel. Right. But. It's deeper than that. It goes beyond witnessing to people. Right. Well, in in it, the, I don't want to say a wall, but there is a point where you step over from sharing gospel to sharing gospel and apologetics. Right. And if, so for me, I'm just being a parent. My apologetics game has to be high. Why? Because as I go through scripture with my children, my children have questions. And therefore, I am doing apologetics with my children. Yeah. My children ask me a question on what we just read. And therefore, like Peter says, you have to have a, an answer for the hope that's within you. So I present the answer to my children. I am doing apologetics. When you are presenting that blanket to the homeless man under the bridge and say, hey, God has sent me to you to give this to you. And he looks at you and say, man, it's two o'clock in the morning. What are you doing here? And at that point, it's sharing the gospel. Right. But then it's when it changes to, okay, well, prove to me that your God sent you to me. Right. Then it's like, all right, let's have a conversation. Right. And that's when your apologetics kicks in. It's not defending saying, oh, I need to raise my guard so I can beat this person and so on. But no, it's, yeah, they're asking a question. Yeah, I need to have a defense. You're not walking up to someone cold and saying, hey, have you thought about just this philosophical idea of God? Let me beat you with my shield of faith. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a time and a place for this. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, looking at to whom we give a defense, some examples. So number one, what everyone goes to is the atheist. Someone who does not believe in a God or higher power either than themselves. For these people, we can use classical or evidential apologetics, looking at the philosophical reasoning, looking at literal evidence. This is what physical evidence, tangible evidence that you can look, see, touch, feel. That's that's what they need. The next is your theists, someone who believes there is or are gods, such as Hindu, Native American, agnostics. That presents more of your classical classical, a little bit of evidential as well. Next, you have your monotheists, someone who believes in one God, such as Muslims, Jews, Christians. You take more of a, a classical presuppositional route. You you may need the, the philosophical, but you, you go to scripture. Right. You go to scripture and you talk about that with them. And why that is superior and more logical than what their belief system exactly. holds. But then you go into even the evidential. So you are having this conversation with a Muslim. They're going through the Quran. You're going through scripture. Okay, let's talk about evidence. When was the Quran written? Who wrote it? Muhammad, okay. Who wrote the Bible? 40 different people within a span of 1,600 years. Yeah. And yeah. Anyway. We're going to yeah. get into that. We're going to get yeah, into that in later. a couple weeks. But that, those, are, those are the conversations you will have. Next is those who claim the name Christian, such as Mormons or Jehovah's Witness. There, you take a presuppositional expository route. They claim the name Christian, but so the, the Book of Mormon is completely different than our Bible. And it is being, and it, that is the presuppositional expository apologetics going through your Bible, going through theirs, just like you would go through the, the with the Muslim in the Quran saying, okay, when was it written? Okay, what's your proofs? These are my proofs, and so on and so forth. The next is brothers and sisters in Christ, as in like looking at different denominations. So you have the Baptists, you have the Methodists, you have the Wesleyans, you have the Catholics, you have all these different sects that 
they believe, uh, most of us, they, I'm pretty sure they, we all believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And we, a lot of these foundational things we can come together on. These are our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is what we, again, presuppositional expository. We, we don't necessarily need to bring in evidential because we, we really do believe pretty much the same things. It's the, the secondary, the tertiary, and, and maybe, sometimes maybe the primary. Core issues, yeah. Yep. It's being able to go through scripture from an exegesis standpoint. Right. Exegetical, expository, apologetics. And then the next, this is the important one. This is the one you start with. It is yourself. Whom are you giving a defense of the faith to? Yourself. Before you are to defend the faith to anyone else, first you must defend the faith to yourself. That all starts and is centered and wholly revolves around the Word of God. This includes the reading of the Bible, studying the Bible, immersing yourself in each word, sentence, chapter, and books of the Bible. You will better defend by knowing and understanding what you are defending. And that's all, it's, it's where it starts. Yeah. That's where it is. That's where it ends. Scripture. Scripture, Scripture. That's Sola Scriptura. Sola Scriptura. That is everything right there. All right, so next, I want to get into something that I, I thought was super cool. Looking at apologetics in the Old Testament. Um, a, as we look at apologetics in the New, we look at Jesus going through and talking to the Pharisees, using Scripture against them. Jesus was a presuppositional expository apologetics. He used scripture against these guys. Now, he is the word, so he was just using his words. Yeah, yeah, it was super cool. Anyway, but he used him against Satan. He used scripture against Satan. The the apostles, the same way. Oh, Paul, all throughout his writings, were was appealing to the Old Testament. Yes. To convince them that Christ is the Messiah. Yes. That Jesus is the one prophesied in the Old Testament. Well, going through Romans, how many times did Paul go back to the Old Testament? Yep. Countless times. Oh, Matthew's full of it, too. Yeah. Book of Matthew. Yep. Because his whole focus when writing Matthew was to focus on Jesus fulfilling the prophecies. Yeah. So, yeah, getting into apologetics in the Old Testament. So, kind of a brief background. Whenever a nation would war with another nation, it was not just the people against people. It was one nation's gods against the other nation's gods. Whoever won would prove that their gods were more powerful than the others. In the Exodus account, it would appear that the Egyptian gods were more powerful because Israel was under their rule. So, looking at Exodus chapters 7 through 11, I won't read them all, but it goes through the plagues. Why the first nine plagues? When the last one would have worked just fine. The answer is in Exodus chapter 9, verse verse 16. It says, God says, But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my power may be proclaimed in all the earth. God wasn't just getting Israel out of Egypt. He was getting Egypt out of Egypt. Israel. That's a quote from Vody Bachman, by the way. I loved it. <laughs> the first nine plagues were addressing Egypt's worldview and theology, as well as Israel's. Again, getting Israel out of Egypt, but more importantly, getting Egypt out of Israel. That's why the Canaanites were ordered to be destroyed. Exactly. Because... To keep them from influencing the Israelites. I mean, what happened? As soon as Israel got out of Egypt, what happened? They immediately formed a golden calf exactly. and started worshiping it out, right. of, out of nowhere. Right there, Exhibit A, <laughs> not all of Egypt was taken out of Israel, right. and God was trying to cut that out. And yeah, going into the land of Canaan, he says, 
Get rid of these people. Kill them. Every last one of them. Why? They're evil. Literally, they're evil. Uh, when we went through, uh, Brad and I went through a covenant training, and uh, the the teacher was going through exactly why they had to get rid of the, the Canaanite people, yeah. the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Amalekites, all these people, was because they were doing evil, wicked, just and for deplorable over, things. And for over 400 years, refused to repent. Exactly. God gave them every opportunity. And they didn't. So yeah, as soon as they got out, they made a golden calf. It just blows my mind. That is why the first nine plagues was he was addressing Egypt's worldview and theology, as well as Israel's worldview and theology. Why? Because at that point... Israel was just as pagan and wicked as the Egyptians. The only difference was God made a covenant with Israel's fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God was fulfilling that covenant by taking them out. That is the, that, that is the reason. Yeah. So next we have 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 45 through 47. This is David and Goliath. What giants are you facing today? Exactly. I <laughs> you knew I was going to go here, didn't you? <laughs> so, I'll read this really quick, starting in verse 45. This is David's response to Goliath. Every time I read it, I get, I get goosebumps. I love it. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, and with a spear, and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. <laughs> this is David's apologetics against Goliath, the Philistines against Israel and against all the earth. There in front of everybody, Israel and the Philistines were across from each other for, I think, months. It was a long, yeah. long time. And every time Goliath would come out and say, are you not entertained? No, he didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> no, he'd, he'd say, would anybody fight me? Will any of, basically, any of you lily-livered, yellow-bellied, yellow-bellied yeah. yellow Israelites, are any of you guys going to come and fight me? And the way Vodi, Vodi puts it is, so so Saul, King Saul, was the, the best choice. You have this giant, over eight feet tall, more nine to ten feet tall, this big, lunky guy. I mean, he was strong. He had this, it goes through and it exactly tells you how much his armor weighed, how much his sword weighed, how much his helmet weighed. But Saul was shoulder and head taller than everybody else. He was the perfect height of being able to be nimble, move around quickly, but deal, deal the death blow. Or looking at, so, at basketball, you know, the NBA. You know, it, it's great if you have a, an eight-foot player but he's not going to be able to move around like a six foot six player. And that's what Saul was. He was perfect for it. But all of them were terrified and they did not believe in God. They did not have the fear of God as they had fear of Goliath. But then you have this little kid coming up, David, who had the fear of the Lord and he knew to whom he served. So he wasn't just addressing Goliath at this right. point. He was addressing all of Israel. Yeah. And he used he used scripture. He used evidence. Yep. And the evidence is he cut off Goliath's head. Like that is yep. pretty strong evidence. Yep. 
for being able to show that God exists and he is the God of Israel. Yeah. The next one, looking at 1 Samuel chapter 5, I won't read it, I'll just discuss it. It goes back to what I said earlier about when a nation war against a nation. It was not just people against people, it was gods against gods. And we see that in 1 Samuel chapter 5, where the Israelites go up against the Philistines in battle, and they bring the Ark of the Covenant in front of them. Well, They did it the wrong way, and they lost. And it turned out the Ark of the Covenant then got turned over to the Philistines. So what did the Philistines do? They brought the Ark of the Covenant and placed it in front of their god, Dagon. While they came back the morning after, what happened? Dagon fell on his face and was bowing to the Ark of the Covenant. They propped Dagon back up. The next day would come back out. The hands were off of Dagon, and Dagon was on the floor. So they got to the point where they knew. They're like, there's something here, and we got to get it out. Yeah. And it, it got to It wasn't point. a belief. It was a, I'm terrified. This is evidence. This. Yeah. yeah. And God struck them with tumors, struck them with tumors and mice. And they're like, get it out. Get it out. Put it on a cart and get it out of here. So Old Testament apologetics. And there's so much more. There's Daniel, oh, yeah. uh, but we, we don't have the time for that one. So we'll, we'll, we'll go on. We are all called to defend the faith. All of us. When we preach and teach to our people, to the church or the bride of Christ, we are doing apologetics to and for God's people. We are called to give a defense of faith, all of us. One of the places we we find that in scripture for elders and pastors is Titus chapter nine, chapter one, verse nine. So th- this is addressing uh, pastors and elders. In verse nine, it says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So at, for pastors, for elders, you need to be able to give a defense when it is appropriate. For every other believer, we, we see in, as we've gone through 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Peter is talking to all of us all believers, that we are to give an answer, give a defense for the hope that is within us. And another, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 2 through 3. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Boy, that sounds familiar. Exactly. My goodness. Did he write that yesterday? Exactly. Like, honestly. And that's the thing. They've been, our early church fathers through the past 2,000 years have been dealing with this. This isn't anything new. No, it's not. It takes new forms here and there. Exactly. Yeah. It's the same stuff, same principle, same underlying sin. Exactly. And we see that. And that is what Paul was talking to Timothy about. All believers are called to defend and contend for the faith. This is a primary issue and is scripturally held with just as much importance as salvation, as we saw in Jude verses 3 through 4, where the the writer of Jude was going to write to them about their common salvation. But instead, he wrote to them about contending for the faith. It is so important. You guys need, all of us, I'm not just talking to you, I'm talking to myself, to to Brad. We all need to know what we believe, why we believe it, and we need, we have to be able to present that in a way that's understandable. So to, to kind of leave us off, uh, presuppositional expository apologetics. Well, here, let, I want to say this, because you have written on here, what we are saying is offensive. People don't really like it when you're confronting something they are doing or believing that is wrong. Yes. So I want to go, I want to 
because I didn't say this earlier, and I meant to, and I said it yesterday, but when we're looking at exegesis and eisegesis and the difference between the two, the Bible makes us uncomfortable. Yeah. It should. It makes our flesh uncomfortable. Yeah. So we, we have a dual nature inside of us as believers. We have a dual nature inside of us. The nature that says everything about God, everything that he commands, everything that he wants, I want nothing to do with. Yeah. That's our sin nature. That's our flesh. That's our natural nature, actually. But then we have the other nature of the Holy Spirit inside of us saying, you need to hunger and thirst for righteousness. You need to love my word. Hide your word in in your heart so you might not sin against me. We are fighting ever so, not not even subtly, we are fighting this very overtly within ourselves. This desire for sin and the desire to please God. And when when we are reading the Bible exegetically, yeah. And having a proper view of scripture, it makes our flesh uncomfortable. We don't like it. Yeah. Our flesh doesn't like it. I want to make sure I clear that up. Our yeah, flesh exactly. doesn't <clears throat> like it. If, and I think Austin said this, if it's not making you uncomfortable on the your flesh, if it's not making reading your scripture. reading yeah. scripture, if it doesn't make you uncomfortable from your sin nature, then you are you're probably reading it in in an eisegetical way. Yeah. You are reading your feelings and your desires and your biases into the passage and not letting it speak for itself. Or if it is somehow backing the way you're living, then again, yeah, you're if more you're, than likely if you're able to justify something that you're doing or saying or living, yeah, then yeah, you're probably not reading it in the proper way. Right. It should make your flesh uncomfortable. It should cause you some kind of icky feelings about yourself and about how you live and about what you're doing. Yeah. It's called called, uh, um, uh, conviction. Conviction. (laughs) There you go. Yeah. So we're going to wrap it up. He is going to sum up presuppositional expository apologetics with one passage. He's going to sum it up in this one passage. Yeah. And we're going to leave you guys with that. So thank you guys for listening to episode number 61. We will be back next week. We're going to talk about how to study the word. Shoot us a message if you have any questions. Find us on Facebook, Instagram. Give us a five-star review on Apple podcast if you feel led to do so i last time i looked i think we're still at 21 let's get it up to 25 yeah give us a five-star review on apple if you have an iphone uh check us out like i said on facebook and interact with us and thank you guys so much again for listening for supporting us thank you for coming for those of you that were in our class this week and who will be in our class in the future we're excited to keep going austin finish us off Yes. So, Romans. Romans chapter 1. If you guys haven't listened to our going through Romans from an expository... Verse by verse. Verse by verse way, I'd I'd say go back to it. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 16. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and the things that have been made. So they were without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became a few they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals 
and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. 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 Well, again, thank you all for listening. We will see you guys next week, same time. And until we meet again, stay stay rooted. rooted.